ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9. I'm, a, I'm excited about this text. Um, many of you know Bobby, Bobby Gaither. He's one of my buddies down south. He preaches up here every once in a while. And we do man camp together. And they're going to start Hebrews soon. So he said, hey, what was one of your favorite sermons to preach in Hebrews? So... I started listing them out. I'm like, oh, I really like chapter one and did this. And I was like, oh, the other part in chapter one was good. Chapter two was good. Chapter three had this part I loved. So I listed almost every single sermon that I mean, I've just, I've loved Hebrews. It's been good for my own heart, my own soul. Um, I, it's hard to say any one really rises above the other. But at this moment where I'm at in chapter nine, this one certainly holds a, a special place. So the title today is Nothing but the blood. That's what we sing about. That's what we're going to preach about. Uh, we're going to do communion and celebrate it and remember it. Um, but kind of as a way to begin, I, I, want you to, I want you to think about this. This is for you movie people. Um, have you ever noticed that great movies have some type of hero or savior type figure? Have you noticed that? I mean, you can start kind of thinking about all your own movies. You can see the ones I went to. Uh, the movie Matrix. Neo wakes up and he has to save humanity from a, a world of machines. Uh, Braveheart, William Wallace must save Scotland from England. And then over the last two decades, Marvel has created superhero movie after superhero movie after superhero movie. And each of them are like blockbuster hits. And all of them are about this enemy that comes either from, from, a, from within Earth or from outside of Earth. And, and we need a hero to come and save. And it's as if all of these movies are connecting with some longing just deep within our heart. Almost as if we innately know as humans that we need to be saved. And, and what's interesting is in all of these movies, when the enemy arises, it's someone powerful. It's someone strong. And it's someone that, that when we look at, we're aware of our weakness, our fragility, going, there's no way that we're going to overcome this. And, and we continually say, we need someone to save us. We need someone like us, but someone far greater than us. So just think about it. So that's what we have in movies. Now, now think about the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we have 39 books that prepares us for a Savior. Uh, the Old Testament, it sets the stage for why it's necessary for Jesus to come over and over and over again. Even as Amy uh, just shared a few moments ago, we see that humanity is sinful and that there's nothing we can do in our might and our power and our wisdom to make us clean and acceptable before God. I mean, just think about how it lays case upon case upon case. At Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have sinned. So that's, that's like two pages into the Bible. Adam and Eve have sinned. They're now removed from the garden, the very presence of God. We then see that sin spreads to all of humanity and becomes so incredibly corrupt by Genesis 6, like four pages into the Bible, God floods the entire earth. We then see that God will eventually begin working and redeeming a people for himself. And so he saves Israel through these ten miraculous plagues and brings them through the Red Sea. Do you remember that? And you remember what Israel does right after that? After this incredibly miraculous saving and demonstration of God's power, 
they complain and they grumble, is he powerful enough to give us food and water? And then they, God will bring them to Mount Sinai where the, where the mountain will shake and tremble. Lightning will come. A cloud will cover the mountain. A voice speaks out about it. The people are so scared. They know they can't touch the mountain because they're so unworthy. But then moments later, they build a golden idol and begin worshiping that. Then a few pages after that, we have God's going to bring them into the promised land. The promised land that he's been promising them ever since he's began working his plan of redemption. And when they're on the brink of the promised land, rather than trust him, they rebel against him again and say, no, we don't think you're strong enough and powerful enough to bring us into the land. So they go on a 40-year detour through the wilderness. God eventually brings them into the land, begins giving them victory over the enemies in the land, and we make our way to the book of Judges. Now, Judges, especially if you go to the last pages of the book of Judges, it's some of the darkest pages in all of Scripture. The stories that you read, there's a prostitute that is cut up and literally FedExed to different parts of the land to show the wickedness that is taking place we then make our way to the kings and and you see the greatest king that there is david the one who has a heart after god and yet he commits murder and adultery i mean just over and over and over and over and over again throughout the old testament we see the sinfulness of man the sinfulness of man the sinfulness of man and it's preparing us for a savior because as we go through we know that we're guilty before god there is no one innocent we are damned we are doomed we are destined for god's wrath we just see it over and over again sin is too strong for us no one has the power to overcome it and then we need to step back and just remember what if the old testament is not a random collection of stories but what if when we, read the, when we read about Israel and we read about the Old Covenant, we're supposed to come to the conclusion that all of humanity is sinful. What if that's the point? What if the point is that as we've been walking through the Old Testament and we see that God is continually gracious and patient with his people, but yet we're not able to be fully forgiven. We need a savior. We need someone who's like us, but far greater than us, who can actually overcome this sin so we can experience the true blessing and presence of God. And then when we come into, new, into, new, into the New Testament, we see that the hero arises. A savior is born. He's like us. He is man, but he's also far greater than us because he is also God. And today we're going to see that Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. We're going to see that only by the blood of Jesus are we able to be made clean and acceptable before God. Jesus is the hope of the world. He's the one that the entire Old Testament has been moving and directing us to. And so with that, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we're going to read chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. We stand every week uh, to remind ourselves that this word is God's word. And it comes with his inspiration. So right now as we read it and as we teach, that we'll be equipped and strengthened and be made more like Jesus. So here we go. Now even the first covenant, this is that old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, 
had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which it was a golden urn, holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once, all, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just, we come and to this passage, and it's all about the blood of your Son. And, and I, I just pray that right now your Spirit work, would work with great clarity. That I and my words and, and whatever else takes place would not get in the way of your message. That every single person would hear, would understand. And Lord, I pray that your Spirit also drives this message with great conviction into the depths of of our hearts and our souls, that we would be so convinced that there is nothing but your blood that saves us. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lord, may, may our hope be, be all in Jesus. May we know that the only, the only chance, the only hope, the only opportunity we have to be justified before you and live eternally with you is through your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone who does not yet know this message, has not yet believed in your son, that they're hoping and believing in anything else, that you would bring conviction upon them today and that they would trust in your son, Jesus Christ, this morning. In your name, amen. You all may be seated. Um, there's two sections in our text. First is verses 1 through 10, 
And that's, we're going to look at the Old Testament sacrifices and worship in the Old Testament. And then in verses 11 through 14, we're going to look at the greater sacrifice of Jesus. So, verses 1 through 10, old sacrifices, um, that's where we're going to start. And the first five verses are all about the earthly tabernacle that Moses built. The tabernacle, which, which later became the temple that Solomon would build, was the place in which God's presence would, would touch earth. It was the most holy place in all of the earth. It was the focus of Israel's worship. And in verses 2 through 7, the author quickly reminds us of the structure, the two rooms that are there, the holy place, the most holy place, and the furniture that is in them. And I would love to spend a lot of time just talking about what those rooms were, what the furniture was about. But look at verse 5. Of these things we cannot now speak in in detail. His point's not to unpack that. He's just simply reminding. Remember the old covenant? Remember the tabernacle? Remember the focus of worship and how that took place? Okay, now that that's in your mind, we're going to move on from that. That's what he's doing, so that's what we're going to do also. And then in verses 6 through 10, the author is now going to remind us, so what did these priestly, what did the priests do in these rooms and in verse 6 we see that the priests would go daily into the first room the holy place that's where they went daily they, they had activities and duties that were be that would be performed in there but then we read in verse 7 that in this other room the most holy place that only the high priests would go in one time a year but for the rest of the time that room was not occupied by Man, And it's here that we see the first problem with the Old Testament worship and sacrificial system. It provided limited access to God. So while, while the tabernacle was a means in which God's presence would be made known among the people, and the most holy place was the most holy place in all of Israel, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence would be, one man from one tribe could go in there one time during the entire year and experience that present. No other Levite could do that, and no one else from the rest of Israel. So 99.9999% of the people of Israel never went in that room. In 364 days of the year, no one went into the room. So while it provided God's presence, and it, God came near, there was still distance that was there. So that's the first thing that he brings to our understanding. But there's a second problem also, and we read about this in verses 8, 9, and 10. We read that the Old Testament sacrifices could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. In Hebrews, he'll, he uses the word conscience several times. It says a means of describing kind of the whole person in their relationship to God. And his point is that the Old Testament animal sacrifices could not cleanse our conscience. It could not remove our guilt. It could not clean the sinfulness of our hearts. The Old Testament sacrificial system was based upon external rules that could only perform external cleaning. So we have two problems. We have limited access and limited efficacy. It was only so effective it could not bring full cleaning. Now, this doesn't at all mean that it was faulty. 
God is the one who gave Israel the sacrificial system. The entire system is one of grace given to Israel by God. Without it, none of God's people would be able to experience God's blessings at all. But what the author wants us to see is that it was temporary. The tabernacle, the furniture, the sacrifices, the priestly duties, all of it was to show man's sin and our need for a greater priest and a greater sacrifice that will bring all of God's people into the very presence of God on a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis. In fact, look at verse 8. The ministry of the Holy Spirit indicates that as long as the earthly tabernacle is standing, access into the true tabernacle where Jesus is, into the actual very presence of God, was not available. So what does that tell us? It means this earthly one needs to go away. We need for it to pass on. We need what verse 10 says, a reformation to come about. We need something new. We need something greater. And then you look at verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent. So what's the point? Jesus is the great reformer. Jesus is the one who brings the Old Testament sacrificial system to an end. Jesus is the one who will do what couldn't be done before. Jesus is the one to bring the good things. What are these good things? It's what we preached on last week, the new covenant. This new heart with God's law written upon our hearts. That now we have the spirit fully indwelt within us. That we would know him. That we would love him. That we would experience absolute forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who purifies our conscience he's the one who makes it possible for us to experience god's blessing and presence every day and how does that take place by a greater sacrifice if you remember a a couple weeks ago i i tried to lay out the flow of the argument chapter seven jesus is the greater priest chapter eight he brings the greater covenant chapter nine It's all based upon the greater sacrifice. So that's what we're looking at. We have the great priest who brings the new covenant. How does he do that? By offering a greater sacrifice. That's what we're looking at today. The great and perfect sacrifice that Jesus offers. And so today, three reasons why Jesus' sacrifice is greater. That's what we're looking at today. We're looking at the very... what we sing about, what the title is, nothing but the blood, the very sacrifice of Jesus. So, there's lots of S's today. It just worked out that way. If those S's at all serve as a means of you remembering the, um, the, why Jesus' sacrifice is greater, then I guess they serve their purpose. Other than that, there are just a, a lot of S's that are going to take place in every point. But Jesus' sacrifice is, number one, substitutionary. It's substitutionary. In the Old Testament, animals were killed for the sins of man. They stood in the place of man. They received man's punishment. They were man's substitute. And on the Day of Atonement, this this day exemplified the substitution more than anything else. The priest, he would go and he would grab a bull. And you can read about this, Leviticus 16. Probably one of the most important chapters in the entire Bible, especially in the Old Testament, about how God's people experience God's blessing. So Day of Atonement, the high priest would take a bull, 
And he would first sacrifice that. He would take the blood, go into the most holy place, sprinkle the blood in there. That was for him. Then he would take two goats. The first goat was to be a sin offering, so he would do the same thing. He would kill the goat, he would take the blood into the holy place, sprinkle it onto um, the, the ark, and then he would come back out. But then there was another goat. And listen to what happens with that goat. This is in Leviticus 16, verses 21 and 22. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness, by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on himself to a remote area, and he shall let the the goat go free in the wilderness. So what does it mean that the goat goes into the wilderness? Is it free? Is the wilderness a safe place for a goat? It carries the sins of the people away from the people, from the presence of God, where it will go and be killed, destroyed. That's the point. Um, Remember, Jesus now represents both goats. He's the sin offering who was offered for us, but he's also the goat who carries the sins of the people and he carries them so that he would suffer under them rather than us. When the priest would lay his hands on the goat, it was symbolic of transferring the sins of the people to the goat. And now Jesus takes the sins of of the world, of those who will believe in him, and he goes out where he will pay the price for those sins. Now, think about this. This is what um, Hebrews 13, 12 says. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Jesus took our sins. He was marched outside the city, just like the goat was taken out, where he went, taking his cross to the hill of Golgotha, where he would be crucified in our place, where he would be destroyed, carrying and bearing our sins so that we who believe in him could be forgiven and be justified. He's our substitute. And if you've read about the crucifixion in Matthew 27, verse 45, it says that from noon to 3 p.m., it turned dark over the land. Now, I don't know about you, but normally it doesn't turn dark at noon. Unless if maybe you live in Alaska. I don't know. we got some Alaska people here, I know. I, I don't know what time it turns dark there. But that's unusual. Why did it turn dark? You ever think about that? Why did the author even include that point? Like, what does it matter it turned dark when Jesus is on the cross? What if What if that's the picture of when Jesus has been now taken outside the city where he actually suffers and experiences the very wrath of God? And that darkness now symbolizes that Jesus is no longer experiencing the blessing of God's presence, but he's experiencing the wrath of God. You see, the most painful part of the crucifixion 
was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. In fact, you can go back and you can look at the way Romans tortured people. The, cro- the cross was one of the worst ways to die, but they had other ways that could arguably be, arguably be worse than the cross. But what was worse, what was the most painful thing about Jesus on the cross was not the nails, but it was receiving the very wrath of God where he stood in your place and in my place and he paid the debt that you and I could never pay. Never, ever pay. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13, Paul will say, Jesus became a curse for us. He took the punishment that we deserve. Do not miss this. He came and paid the debt We could not pay. That's why hell is eternal. You'll never be done paying it. But Jesus on the cross, fully absorbed as our substitute, the wrath of God, so that if we believe in him, we'd be forgiven. Now, now in order to help people understand the sacrifice that was made, some people wrongly and poorly describe the crucifixion like this. Maybe you've heard the story. You can actually kind of go Google it. I'm giving kind of an abbreviated version of this. Imagine a bridge operator brings his son with him to work one day. The operator raises and lowers the bridge when the trains come so that they will cross over the bridge and not go into the water. But then all of a sudden, a train comes sooner than he expected. He must begin to lower the bridge immediately or the, or the train will crash and killing hundreds of people on it. But just as he's about to lower it, he sees his son, who he brought to work, whom he loves, is, is on the tracks. And he's stuck. And he now must make a decision. Will he, will he save the people on the train or will he save his son? And so with great pain and sadness, he now chooses to save the passengers on the train who they will go over the bridge and they will never know what happened for them. And yet the father was in great excruciating pain realizing what has happened to his son. This is how some people have tried to describe the cross. Trying to help us understand maybe the emotional state that God went through, the pain that was taking place, and yet this story is nothing at all like the cross. So, so when you hear things, and when you watch movies that are supposed to depict God and His love and His grace, don't be caught up in emotionalism. Like, make sure, does it align? Because this story shows the son was, was killed because of an accident. The father didn't send him down there. It was not out of joy that the son was down there where he would then die on the train. But what we're told in Scripture is that the father sends the son. And the son, in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him endured the cross. The cross is no, divine, is no cosmic accident. It's the divine means in which God has provided A gracious way for you and I to be saved. But people will try to argue around it because we don't want a blood theology. We don't like the idea of a God who would intentionally send his son to die for the sins of others. We don't think that's loving. And we want a God that we're going to define this is what love looks like. 
But every time we define love apart from God's word, it's twisted because of sin. But what we see that the cross does, it not only upholds love, but it upholds justice also. That our sins have offended God. They must be paid for. And so the cross is not only the means in which God shows his love for us, but it's also a means in which he upholds his justice so that we might truly be saved and he would be righteous. So number one, Jesus comes as our substitute, not as an accident, but for joy he came and bore our sins. Number two, Jesus' sacrifice is spotless. Look at verse 14. We read that Jesus offered himself without blemish to God. Now the author throughout the book of Hebrews has over and over and over again repeated the sinlessness of Jesus. In fact, one, one of the last ones we saw, Hebrews 7 verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer daily sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is spotless, without blemish, without sin, Now, one of the things that we've said as we've made our way through this letter is we've repeated often that many people like to say, Jesus is a way, but he's not the only way to God. And that's a popular way for for people in this world to say, okay, you can have your religion, you can have your Jesus, but come on, let's be real. He's not the only way, right? There has to be other ways. But if there were other ways to obtain forgiveness and get to God, enjoy his presence, why would Jesus come to earth bearing our sins, experiencing God's wrath, standing in our place? Why would he do that? Why was it necessary to have a substitute if we don't need a substitute? Why? Think about this. In the Old Testament, Israel was commanded to offer goats and lambs without blemish. They had to be spotless. Why? God was teaching them that in order to have your sins forgiven, you must have a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice. And yet, that's the very problem with humanity, right? We know that we're not without sin. We know at the core of our hearts, we wrestle with sin. We are wicked. Our, our, our hearts are stained. Now, we try to justify our sins. We justify our hate and our anger by blaming others. In fact, I think we're pretty good at it, don't you think? We're pretty good at, at, um, in fact, I'd say we're professionals at blaming others and justifying our sins. But no matter what we do, we cannot remove the guilt that lies within our hearts. And the Bible's clear. The only hope we have is the blood of Jesus. Jesus' blood is the only currency God will accept for our sins. In fact, in the book of Malachi, last book in the Old Testament, I encourage you to read it. It's a a simple read, and it just highlights how Israel was coming and worshiping wrongly before God. And what we have there is the Old Testament priests, they were offering animals to God, but they were, in Malachi, uh, it, it says that they were blind, they were lame, and they were sick. So they basically grabbed like the worst of the sacrifices and they said, well, we don't have any need for this. Let's just give them to God. And so in verse chapter 1, verse 8, uh, we read this. 
present that, meaning the unworthy sacrifice, to your governor, will he accept that or show you favor? And of course, it's a rhetorical question. No. If a human will not accept your imperfect blemish sacrifices, how much less will God? And here's the point of that. When we think we can come to God by any other means than the blood of Jesus, it's like we're offering sacrifices that are blind, lame, and sick. Just think about that. If we want to think any other way is possible, then what we're doing is saying, okay, we know you sent your son Jesus, and that's like the perfect way, but what if I bring this other way, and it's blemished, and it's blind, and it's lame, and it's only got two legs? Is that good enough? And of course, we know if we would not accept those things, how much less would God? The only means in which we can be saved is not only through Jesus being our substitute, but him being spotless, perfect, without sin, that he would truly be the perfect sacrifice so he could stand in our place. Number three, Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. Look at verses 13 and 14. There's a, there's a flow that takes place there that you can't miss. Verse 13, if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So he's saying, if these animals are good enough to, to sanctify your outside, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ be able to purify our conscience. He wants to show that Jesus' blood is sufficient. So not only is he our substitute, not only is he spotless, but he is sufficient. That's the word that Adiel used last week. He said, we don't use the word sufficient enough. So see, we use the word sufficient. There you go, Adiel. Um, it works always very well when we preach on the blood of Jesus. Um, so let me give you three words to think about as we think about the sufficiency of Jesus and yes, they all start with S's. You know, it, I didn't even try. <laughs> it just happened. Number one, just single. In verse 12, we read that once for all, Jesus entered into the holy places by the means of his blood. Once for all. He made one sacrifice. There will never, ever, 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 ever be another sacrifice made. There needs to be no other sacrifice. Any idea of another sacrifice being made undoes what we read here. Old Testament sacrifices, temporary, all point to Jesus. Jesus fulfills them. There needs to be no more. He's now entered into the holy place. Not the one made by man on earth, but the true heavenly tabernacle the true tent not of this creation where he now is at the right hand of the father uh, of the father as our high priest never will another sacrifice be made one sacrifice for all time satisfies the wrath of god for all who will believe in jesus never again so when you wrestle with your sins and you're going okay i know i sinned again but does Jesus' blood still cover this future sin yes it covers the sins you will do later today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day and all the way until Christ returns. 
and we are perfected in his presence. One sacrifice, fully sufficient. Number two, it satisfies. Verse 14, we read that because of the blood of Jesus, our conscience is purified. I just want you to think how good that news is. Our guilt is removed. We're forgiven. What was anticipated in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. This is what we need to remind ourselves of, and this is what the world needs to know, that in Jesus, our guilt is removed. Do you know that? I encourage you, talk to your, talk to your neighbors. Talk to those who do not yet know Jesus. If you talk to them for any extended period of time, you can begin seeing the guilt that they carry with them on how the burden of sins weighs down on every single person, pressing us lower and lower and lower. And there's nothing we can do to remove it. Now, we can dull the feeling temporarily. There's many ways we can do it. Feeling alcohol, drugs, sex, achieving success, buying more possessions. I mean, there's a lot of things we can do, and a lot of those things can feel really fun. But the thing is, the guilt always returns. The burden always returns. Nothing but the blood of Jesus will wash away your sins and bring forgiveness and absolute peace with God. That's what we need to know. That's what this world needs to know. It's a hope. I think we're, we're, we think that the world doesn't want to hear the gospel, which is why we're timid on sharing the gospel. At least one reason, right? I think we can, we can at least meet each other there halfway. Many of us would think, they probably don't want to hear the gospel. I think they do want to hear the gospel. They want this hope. They want their guilt removed. They don't know that it's Jesus, and the sin within them wants to push away. But it's through the speaking of this gospel, the sharing of this word, that the Spirit works that they would have life. And that their eyes would be open to the only thing that can truly bring forgiveness and peace. And so I want to encourage us, let us be bold in sharing this gospel. Because I believe the world truly, truly wants to hear it. And God's wrath has been so satisfied. If you go to Romans 8.34, and I'll just quote it for you. It says, Paul writes, he says, who is to condemn? Think about it. Think about that question. Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for you. Like, think about this. Do you ever struggle with assurance of salvation? Do you know people that struggle with assurance of salvation? Do you ever wonder what you say at that moment? memorize Romans 8, 34. You don't have to memorize the verse. Memorize the reference and then just turn there or you have a phone and it should have a Bible app or like 50 of them on it. So Paul basically lays down a challenge. Who's going to condemn you? You believed in Jesus. His blood has washed over you. God doesn't condemn you anymore, Romans 8, 1. Who's going to condemn you. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now. We're told he mediates. He's interceding for you right now. Who's going to condemn you? The wrath of God has been so fully satisfied that Paul lays out the gauntlet. Go ahead, bring it. Bring your charges. And they all fall one by one by one by one. None of them can stick because the blood of Jesus has washed us clean. 
Do you know that truth? We forget that truth. We forget that truth. And that's not, you know, immature, immature, oh, this guy's mature, so he doesn't forget it, and if you're immature, no. We all wrestle with sin. We all wrestle with our assurance of salvation in different ways and at different times. One of the reasons we need community, one of the reasons we do table groups, one of the reasons we try to have people in relationship with each other on a regular basis is because we need to be reminded of the truths of the Bible, and this is one we need to constantly remind ourselves of in Christ, there's no condemnation because his wrath has been fully satisfied in Jesus. Isn't that good news? Nothing brings condemnation against you if you've experienced the blood of Christ. Number three, the word secure. So how long does this blood last? That's a good question, right? Like, how long is the guarantee? Is it, is it one year? REI used to give, like, lifetime warranties on everything. I loved it. You know, it's like, oh, three years later, this thing broke. You can still go back there, and they'll replace it. Now they change it to one year. I don't shop there as much. It's, it's not as good. I like Costco. Go buy and take anything back you want at any time. How long does the blood of Christ last? Look at verse 12. Look at the last words of verse 12. By means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. Like, that doesn't even need preach. It just speaks for itself, right? What's the answer? How long does it last? Forever. Forever. Isn't that good news? You believe in Christ, forgiven. End of story. Nothing else. By the blood of Jesus, you've been cleansed permanently. Now, in this age, that doesn't mean that we still never sin. But it does mean we have the hope that when he returns, we will be made perfect with him. This last week, I was reading the book of Acts. I was in Acts chapter 12, and, and Peter gets arrested. You remember Peter gets arrested? He gets thrown in jail. You remember what happens? The church prays. An angel shows up. It literally says, the chains fall off of him. Like, don't you? Like, we need, like, a little uh, nest cam or something. Like, I, I'd like to have seen this. So the chains fall off. The prison door is open. The guards are blind. They don't see. And Peter walks out. And as I was reading that, and I've been wrestling over just this passage, Jesus paid the price for our sins. When we believe in him, we're free. We're no longer guilty. He rescues us from the house of Satan. And he brings us into the very family of God, and there is nothing sin can do about it. It's powerless compared to the grace and the power and the might of our God. Your sins are paid. God's wrath is satisfied. Never, 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 never will you hear the words condemned because God declares justified. You're forgiven. You're purified. You're clean. You have been eternally redeemed, purchased by God through Jesus to be his. There's no take backs. He owns you. He has you. And notice, notice, notice what happens. Verse 14. What happens now? It says, without blemish to God, to purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve. See if I really I could have done four S's to serve the living God. So the blood of Jesus is what saves us, sanctifies us, secures us, awakens us, so that now we are no longer to do dead works in our sin, but we've been made alive so that now we live for God. And we could spend an entire another sermon on that verse right there, but I'll let Spurgeon's words just summarize. He says this, To serve the living God is necessary to the happiness of a living man. For this end, we were made, and we miss the design of our making if we do not honor our maker. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If we miss that end, we ourselves are terrible losers. The service of God is the element in which we alone can fully live. Here it is. Jesus saves us for God's glory and your joy because your only lasting, eternal, true joy is found in living for God, serving Him and experiencing His presence. We need a Savior. 39 books in the Old Testament set the stage. We are sinful. Read your Old Testaments. They prepare us for why we need Jesus. Sin is too great for any man to conquer. We need one man who is both man and God, and then comes Jesus. And by his blood, by his death, death, by the cross, we are saved. God's wrath is satisfied, and we have everlasting life. So I, I just ask you, have you trusted in this Jesus? Are you familiar with him, but have you trusted in him? Do you know that his blood has been applied to you? Do you know that you're forgiven? Do you know he came to stand in your place? Do you know that he's spotless and you are not? Do you know that he's the only one who satisfies God's wrath and brings eternal redemption? Jesus is the greater high priest who offered a greater sacrifice and thus entered the greater tent, having achieved a greater redemption. Let's pray. And we're going to take communion. And as we do, I've asked the, the team, they're going, to, uh, they're going to sing again, nothing but the blood. And so normally what, what happens is while these elements are being passed out, we're asking you to, to think, to pray, to, to have, have a few moments with God as you wrestle through what we're about to do. So you can do all that. Or I want to invite you to, to sing these words. And let them be your heart's cry. That nothing but the blood of Christ is our hope, is our peace, is our comfort. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you, Father. We thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus. We thank you for Jesus coming and for the joy set before him that he died for us, that he stood in our place, that he satisfies your wrath, that we're given eternal redemption, that now we can serve you and have endless joy. Lord, we just, we're just in awe. Words are not enough to communicate praise that is so needed 
for the act of grace that you have given. Our words fail for the, for the thankfulness that we are. And yet, Lord, we, we offer up our words and we praise you from our hearts. We sing songs like nothing but the blood because you alone are worthy. And Lord, I pray that we are not deceived by the worldly message that there are other means or by emotional stories that the world will create, but that we are captivated by the truth of your gospel, that Jesus came to die for us. And there's nothing but the blood that saves us and redeems us. In your name, Jesus, amen.